Welcome to the Bar Hacks Podcast. Engaging interviews, plus tips and strategies to navigate your bar or restaurant business towards sustainable success. Now, here's your host, hospitality industry veteran, journalist, and editor, David Klempt. Hey, welcome back to the Bar Hacks Podcast. We have a guest zooming in all the way from Boston. We have Donal O'Gallacore. Did I say that right? Yes, you did, David. Yes, Fantastic. you did. How's it going? <laughs> it's good. It's good. It's a pleasure to be with you and, and chatting and sharing a bit of our story and talking about our whiskeys and all of that. So absolute pleasure, man. Right in time for St. Patrick's Day as well. So this is perfect timing. Serendipitous. I love it. Your title says lead bottle washer at the Glendalough Distillery. <laughs> Yeah, so, but you're actually one of the co-founders. So what what would you say your title is? At, uh, oh, I, I don't I, I don't really know. I, I sort of had a, a load of them. That's sort of why I put it on there, just to have a bit of fun with it. And also, I, I think that's on LinkedIn, and LinkedIn is so serious that people give themselves these like massive, massive titles. Um, and I have washed bottles in the distillery before, so I think that's that's appropriate, I suppose. Um, but I, I work. It's probably more uh, in a a sort of national brand ambassador type role now. I've done everything from self-distribution with the distillery back in Ireland, running export, running import into the U.S., uh, working with a a team of brand ambassadors um, across coast to coast. Uh, What else have I done? A lot lot of sales in the background in the early years and worked on the production side as well. So a little bit of everything. So before we get too far into this, if people want to follow along, how can they connect with you and the Glendalek, which I really, I don't think I said it right that time, but we're going to see how many different ways I say it. Um, so, so here's another thing I should probably update. So my, my like Instagram is uh, at double measure donal. Uh, so I should probably update that. And it, it'd be at Glendalek Distillery and glendalekdistillery.com. You, you, you can catch us and, on, on all the socials. Glendalock. Okay. I got that, that time I got, it. I think I'm, I've said it three different ways this time, but Glendalock. Okay. So there, <laughs> as we were saying before, before we went live, David, like in Ireland, we like to make things hard, hard to pronounce. So it's like, it's Donalow Gallicor from the Glendalock distillery, but there's no pronunciation tests on this whatsoever. But uh, yeah. <laughs> you are not new to the drinks business. So if you'd like to share a bit of that journey up to the Glendalock, that would be fantastic. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I I started in, in in the drinks business at, at right around seventeen. Um, I actually got a, a job uh, when I was finishing up high school, and it was with a promotional company, and they they ran all these drink promos and bars and at liquor stores and um sort of in your music festivals as well. And a lot of that was like like beer focused, wine focused, but there's a good amount of whiskey focused events, which which I really thrived at. And uh, I was good at that and started managing a, a team uh, doing various different events and campaigns for some of the sort of bigger brand name Irish whiskies uh, on the island of Ireland. And uh, yeah, really enjoyed that. And, and I did that all the way through university, had me paying my way through university. And then after I graduated and um, because of sort of how my, my, my work and my background on that, uh, I got a start with an independent bottler and private label. Uh, Irish whiskey and actually Irish cream and that originally brought me over to the US uh, Atlanta Georgia to be exact 
And we actually uh, worked up that market from 300 cases to three and a half thousand cases, which is uh, fairly, um, uh, fairly good growth in terms of that. And then we ended up launching uh, that brand, that portfolio nationally coast to coast, uh, which, was, which was very, very cool. But um, I was always sort of talking with my cousin and three friends that, um, you know, that, that are all from South Dublin and Wicklow. And we sort of seen firsthand what was going on with the, this is very much in the early stages of the sort of craft distilling revival in the US where there was these uh, smaller producers that were they, were they were setting up and they were looking at their own heritage. They're looking at like this resurgence of rye, look at areas like Baltimore and Pennsylvania. They were looking at these old ryes and sort of resurrecting them and you look at these weeded bourbons and, you know, we were talking all the time and all of us worked in and around the drinks industry and uh, we we sort of got, got our backs up a bit because, you know, in Ireland, we have this depth of distillation that can be traced back to monistic settlements like Glendalock to the 6th century, 584 AD. At its height, there was over 2,000 distilleries. There's 200 licensed, 1,800 plus unlicensed. There was a wealth of different styles. And then there was these... Um, the styles that became dominant uh, in the 16, 17, 18, right up until the early 1900s, took over the world. It was estimated at one point that Irish whiskey was between 80 and 90% of the world's whiskey consumption. It was the drink of royalty, aristocrats, Russian czars. We can't really speak about them right now. Um, but it was the dominant uh, imported whiskey uh, right up until Prohibition in the U.S., uh, we really felt that Irish whiskey was sort of overlooked around the world by whiskey drinkers. It was seen as, you know, light and sweet and typically drank as a shot. And a lot of time that was in a, you know, in a divey Irish bar. And we thought that was an absolute tragedy. Um, so we, we sort of, uh, we, we, we got everything together and we, we sort of gave up our, our jobs and our sort of safer paths. Um, and we, we set up one of the, the first craft distilleries in Ireland. Um, I think, believe we're either distillery number four or distillery number five so it went down from from 2000 down to to two well down to one then quickly two and then we were we were number four or possibly number five and um yeah so that was a that was 11 years ago when we set up and and really you know i'll rattle on i suppose for a little bit but really our mindset in setting up the distillery was always to, to really try to make remarkably different Irish whiskies. So all of our whiskies are singular in style, barrel by barrel aged. We never, never, none of our whiskies are blended whatsoever. They're all non-chill filtered. And really with each of them, we're trying to hit these flavor profiles that are not represented in Irish whiskey that are noteworthy. It's like what Oscar Wilde said, the worst thing than being talked about is not being talked about. So we want people to, you know, to take some go, oh, I, you know, shit, I didn't know Irish whiskey tasted like that. And then that's a conversation right there. And you can go back into that heritage. You can geek out and you can say, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about Irish whiskey and here's how it's different, you know? What did lead to going from, so nearly 4,000 distilleries counting the, the unregistered ones? I'll be about 2,000 plus-ish uh, okay. is where the record sort of lead. Um, but, you know, a lot of people had illicit stills back then. So could could have been as high as 4,000. Um, so essentially what, what led to that massive downfall, uh, it's a bit, of a bit of a tragedy. It's almost like if champagne didn't exist in 10 years, that's what happened to Irish whiskey. So it was a couple of things back to back to back. So firstly, it was the First World War, 
where all these big monarchs uh, in Europe are at war with each other. Uh, wartime, they're not, you know, there's obviously all this turmoil. They're not purchasing barrels of whiskey. It's more of luxury goods. Uh, after that, we had our war of independence, then our civil war back to back, which is now we had domestic turmoil on top of that. Maltzers went out of business, cooperages went out of business, and distilleries went out of business. Then when we got our independence from Britain, um, we had a trade war. There's a running theme here of wars, um, which cut off Australia, New Zealand, Canada, most of Africa, um, you know, uh, India as well. All these, these were all big, massive export markets for Irish whiskey at the time. And then when it couldn't get any worse and the last nail in the coffin was prohibition in the US. So it, it went from like a global exported whiskey and like the, the whiskeys that were exported were either pot still or single malt primarily aged in sherry madeira or port cast there was these big luxurious very very fine whiskeys unsmoked unpeated so it's always seen very different to your, your scottish single malt and seen as superior in, in that that time uh, and that's a very very marked difference from uh, from what irish whiskey was seen as when we set up and it's actually a weird quirk in time why Irish whiskey even became light and sweet. When we sort of got our act together in the 50s, 60s and 70s, the remaining distilleries came together with a little help from, from the early Irish government. When we, the, they sort of got production back going, they looked back out into the world. Everyone was drinking blended scotch or vodka. So then the, the people's flavor profiles had really changed for this sort of lighter, sweeter. And that's where you see the, the Irish blend sort of come out from there. And in reality, it's a sort of like paradox. If there wasn't an Irish blend, there wouldn't be these more interesting styles coming out now, you know, that type of way. So, uh, yeah. So it's, it's it, and not a lot of people know that history. You know, a lot of people so associate whiskey to Ireland, but they, they, they don't know anything outside of maybe some of the bigger brands that they've seen on billboards. And, um, you know, all day, every day, me, my crew, everyone at the distillery, like, you know, it's, it's all about education for us. And you're bringing people that are bourbon drinkers, that are rye drinkers, all of that uh, over to Irish whiskey. And, and we, do it, we do it all day, every day, especially this time of year. Well, and before we were recording, we were talking about how you have some bottles that you can show as an example, but you have different styles. Yes. So I, I think there is a misconception, particularly through North America, that Irish whiskey is this style and that's it. And absolutely inaccurate. It's like other whiskeys people have had. There are multiple styles and you hmm. need to explore to get your style. So how would you describe describe the uh, Glendalock styles? Well, um, we, we don't have like probably an overarching style because like each of our whiskeys, so like our core whiskeys, we have three of them. So we have like our, our double barrel, which is, this is, the, this is our like, go to is a single grain style and single grain whiskey is light it's sweet it's single distillery grain whiskey it actually originated in ireland with the invention of the coffee still by aeneas coffee but very much underutilized all about sucking the characteristics out of the cask sucking the marrow out of it bourbon cask into olorosa sherry cask but this is lighter in terms of style and then um to do a, a second style we'd actually have irish pot still this is very much the defining point within Irish whiskey. Came about by tax evasion from the English in 1785, a malt tax. They introduced this tax on the base ingredient that was used in Irish single malts. 
distillers started to evade that tax. They started to use unmalted barley with malted barley. They said it's the purest thing that ever came from the pot still. It's known for texture. It's big, it's oily, super viscous, has this sort of tangy layer of a spice to it called a pot still characteristic. But this is very much, this can't be made anywhere else in the world, geographically protected. So really, really uh, the defining point within Irish whiskey. And then we, we actually have the style that made the name of Irish whiskey around the world, which is actually the classic, the historic, it's Irish single malt. So, and, and this, this was the style that, that made its way primarily around the world. No smoke, no peat to it, big malt backbone, nice viscosity to it, but it has this sort of like bready, biscuity, malty character. Um, and yeah, and so, so we do each of the styles singularly like not a blend and then barrel by barrel aging. So we're, we're very well versed in, in the styles at the distillery. And then you also make gin and it's not like you just have one or two gins. You have a rose gin and then you've got the seasonal series, which I believe is only available at the distillery. So people now have another reason to visit Ireland so they can come check you guys out and yeah. check out these gins. But what can you tell us about the gin? I, I think I've read yeah. that they're, you guys forage and it's sustainable and. Yeah. Yeah. So we started making gins. Um, we sort of did it backwards, I suppose. We were already, you know, releasing whiskey, sending them around the world and trying to, you know, sort of spread the word. Um, we started to make gins uh, by accident about five years ago. So originally we wanted to do the super small batch of this historic absinthe brands. So there's this lunatic making absinthe in County Leitrim. It's called McDonald's Absinthe and there's really cool brands and often of this like Irish fairy, Irish green fairy on it. And like we we're trying to figure out how the hell he was making it. And we had some of the branding and we didn't really know how he was making it. We got introduced to a wild forager by, by sort of happenstance. Her name is Geraldine Kavna, and she just sort of walked us outside the distillery and sort of got our heads out of our arses in terms of what was growing around there and talked us very quickly out of making something that was so one flavor dominated. And um, we started to make these wild terroir gins. So we use fresh wild botanicals that are handpicked around the distillery all within 10 miles. The area where we live is known as the Garden of Ireland's County Wicklow is where I was born and raised. And all of the botanicals go into the still fresh. It's all pot still distilled, cut points by taste and by smell. And to our knowledge, we're the only people that, that make wild gins. And uh, I'll give you one more. We used to do seasonal gins initially. So we used to do a spring, summer, autumn, winter. We still do in, in a small amount, but that's what we started with. Um, and then it was very difficult to expand that because by the time you, you distill the spring and send it over wherever, it's at least summer if it's not autumn, by the time you get it there. So we, we wanted to capture all of those four seasons. So it actually takes us over a year to make a single bottle of gin. So we'll actually forage and distill at the, at the, at the, the heights when they're at their freshest. So there's almost these micro seasons. So I'll give you an example. Elderflower is elderflower for a couple of weeks until it's elderberry. But there's a whole grouping of botanicals that are like that. So we'll actually forage them. By, by we, I mean Geraldine Kavanagh. Geraldine Kavanagh does all, all the foraging. And, and so we'll actually forage them. Rowdy will distill, who's our master distiller. We'll keep a hold of that distillate. And we'll continue on throughout the year. And then at the very, very end of the year, we'll marry them together at a very specific ratio to represent 
all the botanicals that grow in the region and all of the distillates. So over a year wow. to make a single, so we definitely don't do things in the easy way. So we, <laughs> we, we made whiskey before we made gin and then, uh, yeah, and then it takes us over a year to make a, to, to, to make a single bottle of gin, yeah. You definitely do not do things the easy way, but it's impressive. So, I mean, and that's actually, I, I believe it was the rose gin that I, that has always stuck out when I've been reading about or seen the Glendalock. And I don't know, it's the color, but also I was going to ask, I didn't want to look it up beforehand, but the, it looks like a statue that's on your label. What is yeah. that? What does that represent? So this is actually St. Kevin. Uh, okay. the, the image on the front of every one of our bottles, sort of Bear Grylls looking character. So St. Kevin was actually born into nobility in Ireland in the 6th century. He was supposed to be the next king of the area uh, around Dublin called Leinster, but he didn't really want to go this, this path in front of him, wanted to carve his own way in the world. So he goes over the Wicklow Mountains where he's doing a bit of soul searching. He gets to one point at the top of the mountains where he looks down, sees these two pristine lakes it said that he was drawn to them. And the second he went in between those two lakes, he became religious. And because of his strength of character, his charisma and his preaching, everyone in the locality wanted to live around that holy man. And to this day, in between those two lakes is a sixth century monastic settlement. You can go there, uh, over a million people a year do. It's, it's an absolutely beautiful, magical place. Um, still there to this day. But there's actually a story that the image on the front of our label sort of represents. It's St. Kevin and the Blackbird. So, so it's an old fable. So it's said that St. Kevin used to pray up to his waist in ice cold water in the lower lake with his hands upstretched towards the heavens because monks were into that type of thing at the time. It said that he was very harmonious, very outward nature. A blackbird flew down and landed to his hand. The blackbird was so at peace that she laid her eggs. And St. Kevin stood like that for two weeks until the hatchlings hatched, as they're known to do, and flew off. That's the reason we sort of put that on our bottles. Um, it's sort of twofold. It's, it's, it's that it's a nod back to the, the, the birthplace of uh, of distilled spirits. Uh, it dates back to these old monastic settlements, 584 AD, St. Rudon of Locris is, is, is the text. Um, so it's a nod back to that heritage and that somewhat overlooked heritage. And then secondly, it's this, this character who, um, you know, in our minds did something meaningful, something worthwhile, made his mark and civilization still there 1400 years later plus. So we think that's something to admire, you know, especially when you're setting up a, a distillery and trying to spread the word, the word and trying to make these, you know, remarkably different Irish whiskies and wild terroir gins. I think, you know, that's a, a good inspirational character to have on the front. Hi there. Just a quick message before we get you back to this episode. If you're looking to take your bar, restaurant, or hospitality business to the next level, I mean to profits of 12 to 15% or more, it's time to take action. Let's start creating your roadmap to success with our proprietary strategies, tools, resources that will inspire your team, activate your potential, and lead your hospitality brand to margins you never thought possible. Visit krghospitality.com right after this episode for more information. Now, back to the Bar Hacks podcast. I'm glad I didn't look it up first because I, I love the way you explain that, which actually segues very nicely into when you are dealing with all this competition. I mean, spirits in general is highly competitive, but whiskey mm. the past several years has exploded. I mean, people are, especially throughout North America, they're just, they want to try what all the whiskeys they possibly can, it seems like. So when you go to talk to a bar owner or bartender's, 
how do you introduce them to the Glendalough? Well, you know, I, I sort of would say that we've been part of this Irish whiskey revival uh, for 11 years now. We really try to make, um, you know, try to make these, these different Irish whiskeys and sort of taste them through. And a lot of maybe some of these bars would only stock an Irish whiskey for, call it $7. You know, then they only can sell an Irish whiskey for $7. You know, so essentially you're looking at this variety and breadth of, sort of Irish whiskey is what you is what you sort of sell into them and uh, you know with I hate the term sell but like that's what you're that's what you're offering is saying look here's a load of interest in Irish whiskeys that can expand your portfolio here's a here's the depth of heritage of distillation that is not represented behind your back bar and here's here's me you know willing to support you educate your staff uh, you know, we have a wealth of, of cocktail, you know, of cocktail application for these to make them relevant to you. And, you know, we, we've, we were now the fastest grown super premium Irish whiskey brand in the U.S. from super humble beginnings. I used to, I used to um, sell our putching, which is a moonshine we make in Ireland, sort of. That's going to be controversial, sort of. But I used to sell this out, out, of the, out of the booth, out of the trunk of a car. You know, so we've, we've very much come from humble beginnings to get here. So a lot of, you know, we have awards and accolades on, on all of our releases. So I suppose that's my long-winded way of sort of saying them. you know, it's, it's variety and, and heritage and these, these sort of more uh, bespoke offerings with support is sort of how, how we'd sell it in. And now you've got a new expression I think it's two weeks, maybe it's been on the market, it, like, creeping up on three possibly, which is awesome because people should be looking for this on St. Patrick's Day. I think it'd be mm. an excellent way to, to start their, their celebration, but it is a seven-year single malt, and because you don't do things easy, as, as we've established, <laughs> look at that unboxing, um, you finished this whiskey in a Japanese Mitsunara cask. And I yes. have to ask you where the idea came from, but also how did you even get your hands on even one of these casks? Uh, yeah, I can definitely speak to this now because uh, we've been having this sort of relentless search for, uh, for, for different breeds of oak and different flavorful species of oak from, you know, the Olorosa Sherry cask that we get in Montilla in Spain for our double barrel. We did a project with our own indigenous Irish oak which, are, which is our pot still. And we learned about the chemical compounds, how that grows, thinner cell walls, the porous nature of it. And we actually learned about this um, species of oak. And this, was, this goes back to, to 2014 called the species of oak called Mizunara. And it, in Japanese, it means, it means water water. That's the highest percentage of moisture than any other breed of oak. Uh, the trees take 200 to 500 years to grow. They don't grow straight. Uh, it's really hard to get a stay from it. When you build a cast, the cast is prone to leaking, prone to cracking. You can actually indent it with your fingernail. That's how soft the oak wow. is. No one should ever make a cast from it, ever. And uh, there's a weird quirk in time after the Second World War. These early coopers in Japan couldn't get bourbon or European casts. So they started to chop down their own indigenous tree, became extremely skillful at actually working with it. That you, I think if you brought that oak, uh, I fully believe more like if you brought that that oak in staves to anywhere else in the world, I don't think the Coopers could work with it. We got fascinated with this oak for everything I've said there. 
but probably more importantly to the chemical compound of the flavors that it can deliver. It delivers this like tropical, bright, yellow fruit, mango, pineapple, peach, nectarine, all that, that area. And then it gives this like intense sort of incense, sandalwood, coconut, almond. And the sort of idea sort of became to look to bring this classic iconic Irish single malt to new depths. And we initially did that as an experiment, as a vintage in 2017. We got the first Mizanara cast. We went over to Hokkaido to work with the last independent cooperage. And we, we aged a very, very small amount of 13-year-old malt whiskey in it. And that whiskey got voted in the top 20 whiskeys in the world, got multiple accolades, became a bit of a chameleon of whiskey. No one knew what the hell it was, but they wanted to drink more of it. It's like super complex and became a fan favorite. And we started to experiment, experiment, experiment and build our relationship with that cooperage. And all of those, we've done, uh, we've done two other releases apart from this in the classic Irish single malt and Mizanara space. And they've all really led to this. So we, we work with them. Um, and the, the whiskey is a triple distilled single malt. This is our first this is our first triple distilled single malt. We usually do double distilled single malt. It's seven years in bourbon cast. And we wanted to, that just to knock the corners off and layer on a little sweetness, but then keep like a lot of um, sort of vitality to it, a lot of energy to it. And we found that is perfect for picking up the Mizanara. And uh, we, we age in Mizanara cast. And what we wanted to do with this is, you know, just, just make this front and end all Mizanara. On the nose, it is like peaches and cream. It gets into that almost passion fruit, honeycomb as well on the nose. Then the mid palate is all classic Irish single malt. It's, it's bready, it's biscuity, it's like honey nut Cheerios. It's, uh, yeah, it's all of that. And then on the back end, it almost gets into this cocoa, chocolate, like bitter chocolate. Um, and then like you know, all that sandalwood and like that oak spice comes in. Super, super long finish. And um, this is a this is going to be a permanent expression within our portfolio. Somewhat, well, it's going to be limited because we're going to release this twice a year. And um, we're going forward, we're going to release it twice a year, every year. So it's super exciting that we've worked in this in this in this space, which is a bit of a, a weird space uh, since 2014. And I'll actually uh, I'll give you a, a story. So you see, there's a red thread yes. on, on on every one of the bottles here. So there's actually a story behind that. When we went over to Hokkaido to, to work with this cooperage, as Kev Keenan, one of one of our other founders, was there. Um, we're, we're talking to, to, to the Cooper and uh, it's all through a translator and he sort of asked us, well, what are you, what are you putting in these, in these Mizanara costs? And we, we started boasting a little bit. It's like in Ireland, we make the best barley and we make this uh, historic single malt. It used to be, used to be take the world over. It used to be what Irish whiskey was known for. We make the, the best malt whiskey. And then he goes, oh, well, we make the, we make the best oak here. You must be, you, you, you might, there are best old casks here. And he goes, you must be hearing the red thread of fate. And we go, well, tell us more. What, you know, what are you talking about? And in Japanese culture, there's supposed to be this, orig this invisible red thread that connects people that are meant to be together. 
people and things. And as you go through your life, it gets shorter and shorter and shorter until you're there. Until, until, until you meet them. And we thought that was, that was a great story. And I think it sort of um, brings together this release because these are two areas of the whiskey world that, especially when we started this, but also now that are somewhat unsung and, uh, with, you know, your iconic Irish single malt and Mizanara, and these are thousands of miles away and drawn together. And sort of, in our opinion, they, they make a very... Uh, special and just just unbelievable whiskey and uh, we feel it's, it's meant to be it's a beautiful bottle too i mean the the red thread and then it looks like a gold saint kevin relief on the bottle yeah i mean that on a back bar or in a collection is that's gonna that's definitely gonna stand out that's beautiful and this is a this is actually batch one so uh as you alluded to we, we launched this two weeks ago and this is batch number one but we're going to be, so every batch will, will have a slightly different makeup. We're always going to, to that flavor profile. So there's going to be multiple batches. So, so it's, it's exciting. It's super, super exciting. And uh, we've been working on it for, for, for quite some time. And I'm going to guess that the best way to enjoy this is neat. I mean, with all the notes that you just explained and, the, and just the process that it's gone through, I wouldn't want to, you know, throw Coke on top of it and be like, oh, this is great. But do you have like a food recommendation or is there a cocktail that you would recommend? Uh, like this is a whiskey for solving all the world's problems. I think it just goes neat into a glass, you know, with, with good company. Uh, it, it's so complex and complexity to, to, to me in whiskey is where it's so different on the front, mid palate and finish that it keeps you coming back to the glass saying, what am I tasting? Why am I tasting it? And uh, I think it would be a tragedy to put the, to put Coke or, or anything like that into it. Or, or, but, you know, people have done maybe more of your classic highballs to, you know, to, to, to sort of lighten it up or what have you. But me personally, I'd recommend just drinking it neat with, with, with some good company. Just for your description, I, I think it'd be, enjoy it however you want, but I think it'd be disrespectful to just be like, oh, let's throw a bunch of mixers on top of this and, and slam it down. <laughs> so. And it sounds like it'd be a great dessert drink too. I mean, you have an amazing meal and then you enjoy slowly uh, a, a seven-year Mitsunara cask. I mean, I, I love this new product and I'm glad it's it's available right before St. Patrick's Day starts. That that's fantastic. It was a bit of a, a bit of a rush to get it in. To get it in <laughs> and everything was a bit of a rush, you know. But um, no, we're really and the reaction to it has been been phenomenal and it, it sort of bridges the gap and gets people out of this sort of pigeonhole because um again it sort of gets back to that sort of noteworthy aspect it says single malt on the front of it right so then then first off you're like okay so single malt drinkers are going well what the, that's an irish single malt and then sort of it, it opens that up and then it has you know glendalock distillery and the people in irish whiskey most of them will hopefully most of them would know of some of our releases and go oh, well that's new from glendalock then it has this japanese calligraphy on it and your japanese whiskey drinkers are like oh well, okay well, what, what the hell are they doing over there and then you know the our other releases in this space have gotten multiple like accolades and awards so your people who are hunting the the sort of the, the top 20s like all of that and it pulls in a lot of those more sort of bourbon rye focused drinkers as well. So it's a it's a hundred percent a chameleon of a whiskey, and um, yeah, you could put this out for someone who's, who drinks Japanese whiskey, Scotch, 
rye, what have you, Taiwanese whiskey, it's um it's complete crowd pleaser because it has that 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 complex flavor profile that the, the you know it, it just gets you saying what's in the glass, you know, it's a conversation starter. Probably better look out for it because as you can see, I've got my little home bar in the back, my little bottle shop, and I definitely need I to add that. And I do believe there's a few uh, stores out here who, who do already have it. So I'm going to be on the lookout. And speaking of the lookout, and I don't, don't want you to give away too much, but is there anything else? I know this is brand new, so it's weird to ask you, but <laughs> is there anything else that we should be on the lookout for throughout this year from the Glendalock? Well, I, I can't really say too much on that, but uh, we are very into uh, our oaks uh, at Glendalock, and uh, we're very lucky at where we are in the Wicklow Mountains that we're, we're in an area where there's some of the only remaining Irish oak trees are. And we've, we've done a project, which is our, our pot still, uh, which, is, which is aged in, in Irish oak. We took down 14 trees, gave us 50 casks, every single bottle's traceable back to the tree and to the cask. We replanted seven trees for every one we took down. We got an icon of whiskey award for it. But um, there will be more in that space in terms of uh, Irish oak. And we have uh, a good amount of whiskey laid down in that and some interesting um, sort of innovations in that space. And we love Irish oak because it's almost a sort of self-determination of what should Irish whiskey taste like. Because you, you, you have the very early distillates that would have been I wouldn't say I'd say rested within casts that were made out of Irish oak. They were never really fully maturation. You get the sherry Madeira and port throughout the 1600s to early 1900s. That were that that you know this these fortified wines. Then after that, you get this um, after um, prohibition, you get the bourbonization uh, where you know all new American whiskey has to be in new American oak. So you get these these bourbon casts make their way to Ireland and Scotland. So so that's where a lot of your bourbon cask influence comes in. But this is taking a step back saying like, what, why don't we use Irish oak within Irish whiskey? It seems like something that would make so much sense, specifically pot still whiskey, which is a style that you can only make on the island of Ireland. So we're going to be very much leaning into that space. And we have a couple of wacky projects that might not see the life, life of day uh, at all. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. So before we go, what is your go-to in in your portfolio your your go-to whiskey your go-to gin and then your favorite cocktail to make with uh Glendalock. so my my go-to whiskey just, just super super easy drinking is our double barrel because with this whiskey uh it's a mash bill malted barley organic corn the malt gives it keeps a little bit of weight into it the corn gives a nice sweetness bourbon cask agent sort of is a bit more sweetness to it, but then it's the Olorosa sherry, drops in a ton, a ton of complexity, dark cherry fig, tannin note, almost into tobacco. And it's very atypical for a light whiskey to have that depth to it. It typically you'd associate it with single malt scotch or something like that. And it's, I love this because I love the reaction pouring it out for people. Uh, we jokingly call it a gateway Irish whiskey. Um, so I love this because it has such versatility as well, where you, have, you can have neat have it next to it, next to a beer, make make a great cocktail with it as well. But on the other side of the distillery, uh, my sort of go-to would be our rose petal gin, uh, which actually comes from our master distiller Rowdy. It's actually a tribute to his late mother Rose, Rose Rooney, who used to keep a, a rose garden. She, she passed away suddenly 
Uh, he actually made this as a fitting tribute to her. And on the on this sort of geek out element to it, there's uh, there's maceration, vapor distillation, then infusion. So there's no artificial colors or flavors to this whatsoever, uh, and which is beautiful. So there's nothing else like it. It's a truly authentic craft expression in that sort of flavored and colored gin, where there's a lot of things that are very very sweet. Uh, I love this in a gimlet. If I'm like if I'm like hosting people over at my house, I'll do a gimlet two one one ratio. A uh, beautiful color will come out to it. You can make like three, possibly four in your tin, just like that. And it's and it's just so appealing like that. Um, I'll also go to a bee's knees with this as well. Because all of our gins use fresh wild botanicals. There's a, they're super, super oily. So it actually hold up in your citrus cocktails more so than any other gin that, that, that I've ever made cocktails with. So it's um, I'd probably go to that. Especially now that we're coming into spring, you're starting to see the sun come out. That, that's where I'd go. Very seasonal. It's a striking bottle too. Like I said, I think that was really when the Glendalock stuck in my head is with the, the label and then that color. And to learn that it's all natural is even more impressive. I, it's, it sticks with you, that bottle, even if you just see it on a back bar or you see it mm. on a retail shelf. I, I love it. No, I was just going to say that you have to taste this to believe this because when people see this, they're going to, they think it's going to be like rock candy or it's going to be like, you know, they're going to, it's going to be like an older woman's perfume or something like that. And this is like grapefruit, uh, like grapefruit zest, soft on the juniper, pink peppercorn, has this tannin component to it. The tannins are actually from the rose petals that are actually within the rose petals, which is like very, very distinctive which is like the opposite to, to the double barrel, which they come from the other or so sherry cast. We get this bright berry and then distinctively rose, like sticking your head into a bouquet of roses. So like once people try this, they're like mind blown. So we love that. <laughs> Could you once again explain to people how they can connect with you and learn more about the Glendalek? Yeah, so uh, connect on uh, glendlockdistillery.com. We, 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 have the, we have a website there if you just want to sign up for any of our, uh, we have a newsletter thing, so that'll give you information on things that we have going on or new releases or, you know, vintages and single casts and stuff like that that we have coming out. Uh, we're on Glendlock Distillery on Instagram. We don't really do Twitter. We might be have a page on Twitter, but we're not big on it. It's a bit of a dumpster fire these days anyway. So um yeah we're on Facebook. I'm not sure if I said that. I'm double measure Donal on Instagram. I'm not super active. I need to be more active. So this might give me give me a bit of a bit of a kick to get more active on us. Donal, thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. I learned a lot. Dave, this is fantastic. Thanks very much for having me. An absolute pleasure. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you and your listeners. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Launch it. Cheers, man. Thank you for listening to the Bar Hacks podcast produced by KRG Hospitality and hosted by me, David Clem. If you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. Follow us on Twitter at Ask Bar Hacks and Instagram at Bar Hacks. Talk to you soon.